Welcome to God's Word Community Church Sermon Broadcast. The books of Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul, are so special because they show us what a truly good church looks like. We hope you enjoy the kind of meaty, spiritual food from God's Word that we offer here at GWCC. We are turning back, finally, to the study of 1 Thessalonians that we interrupted at the end of November. We are doing work in expository or exegetical preaching. What that means is that we are looking at a text of Scripture and trying to expose what is present in that text so we can understand it, so it can be applied to us. We are in 1 Thessalonians because as a young church that is seeking to rediscover what God did in his original church, his first church, the one where the apostles were still alive, we're trying to learn how to recover the experience of that first church to make the 2,000-year jump from our point in time all the way back there and see if we can rediscover the aspects of our faith together in Christ that have been lost. So we've asked the question, what is a New Testament church? What is it like? How would we behave if we were behaving like the New Testament church? So we're looking at the letters in the New Testament that were written to those churches. And what we found out is that there are many different examples of what a New Testament church could end up looking like. Um, Our first study, we're going in chronological order when these books were written. Our first study was in the book of Galatians, and we found out that Paul was very, very angry with that New Testament church that they had sold their freedom and liberty in Christ to go back into legalism, to go back into kind of an old-school man-made religion. And the apostle was very disturbed with them about that. And he corrected them very firmly to come back into the freedom of the cross. The next letters that Paul wrote were the letters to the Thessalonians. And when we go from Galatians to Thessalonians, we've experienced a radical difference in atmosphere. The Thessalonians are a church together that every single one of us, I think, would love to be a part of. This is a church where their faith worked together with their love for one another. They were practicing discipleship in such a way that not only were they raising up the newcomers in their church, but they also were creating a reputation in their region for the kind of church they were because of their faith, because of their love. The testimonies of those things were visible in their behaviors, and it created a wonderful reputation, the kind of reputation we would always want a church to have. Now, we have gone through a few of the chapters of 1 Thessalonians. We are now halfway through chapter 4, and we are entering a very important conversation, something that you could get almost any man on the street to be intrigued by. Beginning in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, we read the very first statement that was written in Scripture to the Lord's church about the day of the Lord, about the return of Jesus Christ, about the day when we will earn our wings, about that thing which has been popularly called the rapture. 
And so this passage of Scripture from 4.13 to 5.11 is a passage of Scripture that people would be intrigued by because we always want to know what's going to happen. Now, let me warn you when we get into this that some of the things that Paul says here, he's saying because the church has never heard it before. Some of the things that he says here are things that you would take for granted, even if you're fairly young in Christianity. But when Paul says these things, these are some of the first times they've ever been written down by an apostle. Notice when he says 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Wow, what's being said here? Apparently, at this time, very, very early in the life of the Christian church, when people were dying, as people do, when people were dying, the folks that were still alive were grieving in a very deep and profound way. There was something that they didn't know, and it was causing them to grieve even harder. Now, 413 is an important verse to me when I participate in a funeral or when I actually lead a funeral. Because notice here that Paul does not tell us not to grieve. He tells us that we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. And I'm quick to testify that there's a huge difference between funerals for people who don't know God at all. Atmosphere at funerals like that is kind of tense, uncomfortable. Nobody really knows what to say. They're uncomfortable around the coffin. It's a very, it, it's not a relaxed atmosphere when you have non-believers and someone has died. Funny thing is, if people are Christians but just barely, they don't read their Bibles, they really don't have a regular practice of the presence of God, they aren't worshiping frequently. What's funny to me is after years and years and years of doing funerals, the funerals for people who are barely Christian at all are exactly like the funerals of non-Christians. And what I have observed is that when people have not made a practice of knowing God and depending on God and trusting in Him and knowing His hope, that stuff doesn't suddenly appear now that somebody has died. When the person has not made a practice of leaning on God and trusting His presence and looking forward to the hope, of the resurrection of the dead, when they haven't done that in the past, they don't have it available on the day that they lose someone important. And so the funeral for a non-Christian is very, very similar to the funeral for, you know, the 80% of the American public who say, you know, that they believe in God but really don't do anything about it. Those funerals are very similar. Now, when you have the funeral of somebody who is a bona fide Christian, loves Jesus Christ, has lived that way, Wow, what a different atmosphere. People are relaxed. They are. The whole room is relaxed. People are talking about the testimony of the past person's life. They talk about the joy that that person is experiencing now because they are with Jesus. And sometimes you get the opportunity to go to a funeral like the one for my uncle who had helped 
preachers stay in their faith, who had raised up his children, who had brought all kinds of people into the church who loved Jesus Christ more than life itself. You get to go to a funeral like that, that is a stomp the floor, raise your fists, knock out the windows, shout in the air kind of funeral. Those are fun funerals. Is when you've got somebody who beyond a shadow of a doubt is sold out hook, line, and sinker for Jesus Christ. That is a transformed funeral. So we've got the Thessalonians here who, despite all their faith, despite all their love, there's something they're disturbed about, about those among them that have died. What is it? For since we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Wow, Paul is trying to reassure them that those that have gone ahead and died, Jesus is actually going to raise them up. Well, you and I are going to say, duh, we've heard that all the time. But what we're going to find out here is that these people think that Jesus is coming back in the first century. They think he's going to show up before they die. And so when mom dies, like my mom did last December before last, December of 2013, when mom dies, it's like she didn't, she didn't live till Jesus come back. What, what happened to mom? What's going to happen to mom? Because she's not, she's not here, and we're waiting for the Lord to come. Well, you and I, I mean, we've been raised in a situation where we know that when someone has died in the Lord, they have already, you know, begun to experience their reward. Thessalonians didn't know that. This was very early. They thought we all had to be vertical and take an oxygen when Jesus came back. So Paul is trying to straighten this out. We declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Listen, don't worry about mom, he's saying. Yeah, I know mom is dead, but don't worry about her. Don't worry about this situation. You're not going to get there before she does. Don't worry she's going to get left behind. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment because I want to offer you a little tip about the old translation of the Bible that has been so important and so popular in the United States. The old King James for this verse, verse 15, is very difficult for modern readers to understand because this phrase that I just read to you, we who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In the old King James, it says, we will not prevent those who have fallen asleep. When you and I see the expression, will not prevent those who have fallen asleep, because of what the word prevent means to us, we think the Thessalonians were confused that somehow the living were going to stop the dead. We have trouble making any sense out of the sentence at all. The issue is that English is a living language. And living languages that are continuing to be spoken, over time the words change in meaning. And that's what happened with the word prevent. You know, when... When I was a small kid, if somebody told me that my shirt got ripped off, you know, maybe some eagle swooped down and tore it off my back. I mean, that's how I understood the word ripped when I was little. By the time I got to high school, if somebody ripped off my shirt, that means they stole it out of my locker, right? 
Now, if we talk about somebody is ripped, what does that mean? It means they've got abs you can grate cheese on, right? So I just want you to see how in just one lifetime, we've seen a word like ripped go through three different definitions. And if you don't know what a person is meaning when they use it, it can be very confusing. The version of Hebrew that the Old Testament is written in, the version of Greek that the New Testament is written in, both of those languages are dead languages. Nobody's speaking them anymore. And so the meaning of those words don't change, but the English that we use to translate, that changes. It's only been three years ago that we celebrated the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible, which was translated in 1611. Now, you'll understand what happened to the word prevent when I ask you, what does the prefix pre mean to you? Before, right. We normally think of the word pre or the syllable pre to mean before. Now, then you have vent. When you put vents in your floor for your heating and air conditioning to go through, what is a vent for? Yes, to allow something to come through, to allow something to pass. In our time, the word prevent means to stop or to cease. But in the time that King James was written, prevent meant to go before, to move before, to travel before. Yes, <laughs> we need to have a, a, a head reparation station out here, right? So when your mind gets blown, we've got to help for you. <laughs> first aid, mind blown first aid. I don't know what that would look like. Anyway, so when you read, we will certainly not, the, those who are still left will not prevent those who have fallen asleep. It's exactly what we read here today. It simply means they will not go before those who have fallen asleep. One of the reasons I encourage people to read modern translations of the Bible is that the words have changed meaning over time because English is a living language. And this is a great example in verse 15. Verse 16, Paul goes on and explains to us what we want to know. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven Wow! with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Wow. Then, we who are alive, who are left, he actually describes the people that are living at the time Jesus Christ comes again. He uses the word, the remaining ones. I think he's assuming that the dead will outnumber the living on the day that Jesus comes back. We who are remaining will be caught up. See the language? We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, you can't see it, but verse 17 is where the word rapture is located. But it's not located here in English. The word rapture is the Latin version of the Bible for caught up. And this is where it occurs. Now, there are different doctrines about the rapture that have been circulated and one of the ones that I want to dismiss for you this morning is the idea that when this day of the Lord comes this catching up in the air 
It's not going to be a situation, as you have sometimes seen described or pictured, where suddenly all the Christians are gone, you know, their cars spinning out of control into the phone poles, and the nurse goes back to check the nursery, and all the infants are gone, and people are going to stand around going, where did everybody go? That's how the rapture is sometimes described, that it's going to be this phenomenal, confusing mystery of everybody that's left. When Jesus Christ descends with a loud command and an archangel blows the trumpet of God, it is likely to get some attention. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus describes the end of times, he says that when the Son of Man comes, it will be like lightning flashing from the eastern sky to the western sky, and then one of the saddest prophecies in all the Bible, and the nations of the earth will mourn. They will grieve because Jesus has showed up. They didn't follow Him. They didn't believe in Him. Their agendas were set differently than God's. And when Jesus actually shows up, it will bring them fear and grief. For those of us who have been waiting for Him, and we know that this world is not our home, we are kingdoms of a different country, we will meet Him with shouts of victory and glory and triumph and honor, just like Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 2. The world is going to respond to this very differently. So, I want you to know, yes, you're going to get to fly. That's pretty cool. My favorite dreams are when I get to fly. I want you to know that my dreams don't cut, cut me too much slack, though. You know, even in my dreams, I don't fly very well. You know, you would think that if somebody were going to dream about flying, I'd be like Superman. No, I'm like jumping off of a roof and I can barely get, you know, I'm trying to get and maybe over a tree and then I'm sinking back down a tree. I don't know why my flying in my dreams is so wimpy. <laughs> I'm underpowered. Can you help me with that? Can you? Aerospace, yeah, give me some help. <laughs> when Jesus catches us up, you're not going to have any trouble jumping from here to heaven. You're going to be following brothers and sisters that we have seen go on before us, and we're going to get to meet the Lord in the air. What is the point of all this? The point of all this is not to know in detailed sequence every single thing that's going to happen. The point of all this is not knowing when exactly this is going to happen. I want you to notice what the writer here thinks is important. What does the apostle think is important? Look at the end of verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. One of the things that we really need to get clearer about is that the most important part of heaven is actually finally getting to be with Jesus face to face. That's the best part. The worst part of hell is being completely 100% totally cut off from God. When you think about Jesus as being the source of every reason that you've ever had to smile, every reason you've ever had to smile, every good thing that you've ever had. He has brought every blessing, every positive moment, every positive experience that you've had. He is the creator of it. 
And you realize that Paul says now we see through a glass darkly. We don't even clearly perceive what it's going to be like, what being with him is going to be like. But when we get to be with him, whom James calls the father of the heavenly lights, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from him who is the father of the heavenly lights. In hell, (laughs) I'm going to be worse than the worst I've ever been. Have you ever had to work a graveyard shift, maybe a double, and maybe you've said some things that night you weren't too proud of and you didn't hate, you, you, you lost your love for everything that looked like a human being on the planet by the time you were done and by the time you get out of there, you are depleted. You're not proud of yourself because you feel like you're a miserable wretch. <laughs> it doesn't ever get that good in hell. I'm not nearly as afraid of the flames as I am me being the very worst me I could possibly be without God. That's the worst picture to me of all. So when we think about Jesus coming back, what we need to remember where the emphasis should be placed is that we will finally get to be with the Lord and then look what he tells us to do with this. Verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You and I are to be ministers together. And from time to time, we're supposed to give each other a little shot in the arm and say, you know what? Someday you're going to get to fly and this is not going to matter. Someday you're going to get to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Someday, brothers and sisters, I am finally going to get to be innocent again. And so are you. Now, the break between 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 is one of those chapter breaks that I don't think is positioned very well because this subject just rolls right into 5.1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, in the Greek language of the New Testament, we have two words that are used here for the concept of time. Chronos, about the times, and kairos, the seasons. Now chronos, like you might expect, is the kind of time that we think of when we think of a chronometer, which is a watch or a clock. Chronos is tick-tock time. What day of the week? What month of the year? What year? That's chronos. So Paul is telling us, I don't have any reason to write to you about the chronos of when Jesus is going to return. There's no way we're going to date this. Yes, there have been a lot of Bible people that have gone back and said, okay, you've got the 70 weeks of Daniel. We add that to the return from the Babylonian captivity. We divide it by four sheep. We add a Milky Way bar. And look, Jesus is coming back here. You know? We've got so many people that have gone through these fantastic calculations trying to discern exactly when Jesus is going to come back. We're going to find out real soon here that it's the wrong question. That's not what the day of the Lord should cause us to ask. Kairos is a season. It is a kind of time. When you look at your life, is this a time of stress? Is this a time of blessing? Is this a time when you are moving forward? Is this a time of romance? Is this a time of being strong in the Lord, weak in the Lord? It's very much the kind of time we think of when we think of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Everything is beautiful in its time, everything perfect in its season, a time for planting, a time for harvesting, a time for gathering stones, a time for 
scattering them. See, those are seasons of time. That's the kairos. So Paul is saying here about the chronos and the kairos, I don't have any reason to write to you. And he says, and you know it. (laughs) You already know it. Because you yourselves are fully aware that the, and look at this language. You've heard me use this language in this sermon already. But here it appears in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord. You see that language there? Day of the Lord. That is a piece of um, expression that was made famous by the prophet Joel in his book. In Joel chapter 2, we have a description, an introduction to the idea of the day of the Lord. Now, Joel's not the only place. There are many other places in the Old Testament and some places in the New Testament where this very important expression appears. If I read the first two verses of Joel 2, it goes like this. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tribble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. And then it describes the anguish that they will experience. Now, when Joel goes on for a number of verses about how disastrous this day will be, he then issues, beginning in verse 12, Joel's famous call to repentance. And this gets us very close to what Paul is going to do. Joel says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. I don't care if you tear your clothes. What I want is for your heart to be torn. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. The message of the day of the Lord is that you don't want to be unready for it. The day of the Lord is a powerful two-edged event. The bigger fraction of it is in the direction of destruction. The day of the Lord is a terrifying thing. Second Peter chapter 3, the apostle notices how callous people are with regard to God. They, they're like standing out there in the field going, Come on, bring it on. Let's see what you've got. And that's why Second Peter 3 is such an intense chapter. I always tell people if they're going to read Second Peter chapter 3, put oven mitts on. Because you probably get burned. There's all kind of smoke comes up in your face. Second Peter 3 is a pretty intense little piece. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, drum roll please, day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, this is all tied in with some of that rapture doctrine where people think that when folks disappear and all this stuff that nobody will know that the rapture has happened. I want you to notice that in the context, this expression, thief in the night, does not mean that nobody's going to know that it happened. If you walk into your home and a thief has been there and he's made off with your microwave and your collection of Beatles plates and your computer and your TV set and all those things, you know that a thief has been there, right? 
The issue of the thief in the night is that they don't let you know when they're coming. Hi there, I was thinking about robbing your place on Thursday evening about 11.30. Does that work for you? Could you, like, get out of the house at that time? They don't announce it. They don't tell you in advance. You know perfectly well that the day of the Lord, drumroll please, will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, while people think, there's peace and security. See the emphasis here? I'm not just in a fire and brimstone mood. You see where Paul puts the emphasis. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. They will not escape. Jesus warns us stuff that is not politically correct. The way to heaven is narrow. The path to destruction is broad. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? He, he speaks this message of warning, and some people say, but we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. That one is always scary to me because it sounds like people in a church who already think they've got a relationship with Jesus, only when he shows up they find out they don't. They didn't. And so that one's always very sobering for me. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It's so cool when Paul is writing to this church that he knows how the Thessalonians really are, though, in spirit. And notice that he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of night, we are not of darkness. So then, let us not sleep. Talking here about sleeping spiritually. Don't don't close your eyes and get casual about your relationship with God. Be like a very, very skilled and intense security guard who stays focused on the task of protecting the fence, checking the doors, watching the windows. Stay intent. What's the problem with that job? The problem is is that time passes where nothing strange or special happens, right? But if you catch the guard unwatching, then all kinds of disastrous things can happen. And that's what Paul is warning us about. We are not of the night of the darkness, so then let us not sleep. Don't go to sleep spiritually as others do, but let us keep awake spiritually. Chase Jesus. Keep growing in Him. Don't be satisfied with where you are. Press forward. Read your Scripture. Kneel before God. Ask Him where He wants you to go. Ask Him what He wants your ministries to be. Ask Him to send you those whom you are supposed to disciple. And don't be afraid because you have brothers and sisters here who will help you disciple to do the task He has called you to. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. He's describing the life of spiritual sleep, slumber, coma that's in our world. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, serious, focused, intent. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, I love this, in Ephesians chapter 6, the breastplate is called the breastplate of righteousness. One of the things I've noticed in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, 
kind of put this on the back burner of your mind. And when you do your Bible reading, see if you see it too. There are times when I see righteousness equated to faith and love. It's almost like the vertical piece and the horizontal piece. That living righteously is a combination of faith and love. And it's interesting to me that the breastplate that he calls righteousness in Ephesians 6 is called the breastplate of faith and love here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I also want to point out to you, in case you don't know this, that I think Paul is all excited about the book of Isaiah. Because you can actually find the same spiritual armor that he writes about in Ephesians 6, you can find in Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 talks about the Lord himself dressing himself with this breastplate and the helmet and so on. There is one piece of the outfit that's mentioned in Isaiah that's not mentioned in the New Testament. That'd be one of the hardest Bible trivia questions you've ever heard, isn't it? It says in Isaiah, and the Lord wraps himself in zeal as with a cloak. Isn't that cool? That's the cape. You can see what side I belong on. It's no mystery whose team I'm on. The zeal is like a cloak. I really like that. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I kind of want you to say that about yourself right now. I am destined to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. That sounds good, doesn't it? Why don't you say that with me one time? I am destined to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Isn't that sweet? We're not children of the darkness, but children of the day. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep in the sense of being alive or dead, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Now this coming that Paul talks about, he uses this word, and this is a word you might actually want to remember. You'll see it in Christian writings from time to time. You most often will hear it pronounced parousia some people keeping the greek pronunciation will say parousia but what this wonderful word refers to is the victory parade of the returning conqueror in the old kingdoms when a lord had gone out and conquered dramatically and they would come back with treasures and unusual animals great animals sometimes slaves in the caravan and the and the conqueror is in front in a chariot um, returning to his people that's the parousia or the parousia that's how Jesus's coming is described by Paul here this is the word he uses Jesus will come down with a loud command with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet call of God that's the parousia when he tells us to watch it's the word Gregoreo. The English name Gregory actually comes from the Greek word to watch. Watch yourself spiritually. Watch your brothers and sisters in Christ. Support them when they feel weak. Support them in times of trouble. It is a word that Jesus uses in his parables about the last days. He uses those terms over and over again. He says, I tell you, watch. The night that he was betrayed, what he asked the disciples for that were with him was, could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not keep yourself spiritually alert in this dark time one hour? 
So this is our call. This is our battle call to stay on watch, to guard, to grow. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, isn't this funny? This sounds like a, a repeat of what he said before. Therefore, encourage one another. <laughs> encourage one another and build one another up. That's what a New Testament church does. A New Testament church is where the church leaders are guiding people into their ministries, helping equip them for their ministries, where the church people together are concerned about building up one another, being unified at the Lord's table, strengthening each other in their walk, and reminding each other that we are headed somewhere. We're looking forward to something. We can't see it yet, but it's coming. We know Him. We know Him who is coming for us. The big deal about the day of the Lord, brothers and sisters, is not when is it coming. It's not if Russia's doing this and China's doing this, is it now time for Jesus to come back? People have been playing that game for thousands of years now. What's important is to be ready. Every moment. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we cannot wait to see you tear open the sky. We cannot wait for your return. We are so looking forward to adding our voices to those of your angels, to those of creation in the sea and on the earth and in the air. We are so looking forward to declaring before all creation in your presence that you are Lord. And that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of your Father. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.